Megan Bryson centers gender as an analytical framework in the study of Buddhism. The benefit of this approach is vividly demonstrated in Goddess on the Frontier, Religion, Ethnicity, and Gender in Southwest China, which uncovers the transformation of the goddess Baijie over several centuries. Bryson's research explores the various social and historical contexts of the Dali region in southwest China, where the deity was shaped by local expressions of the Buddhist tradition. Baijia was depicted as a Buddhist goddess, the mother of Dali's founder, a widowed martyr, and a village divinity. Bryson combines the exploration of historical sources and ethnographic encounters with contemporary Baijia worshippers to offer a nuanced and far-reaching portrait of the goddess. In our conversation, we discussed Chinese and Indian formulations of Buddhism, the Buddhist history of the Dali region, how local Dali elites narrativized the goddess, stories of dragons, issues of Han migration, the Ming and Qing gendered social norms and expectations, and how notions of the category's religion and ethnicity shape recent interpretations of Baijie. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion on the New Books Network. Without any further delay, here's my conversation with Megan Bryson about Goddess on the Frontier, Religion, Ethnicity, and Gender in Southwest China, published with Stanford University Press in 2016. Welcome, Megan. Thanks for joining us on New Books in Religion. How are you? Doing pretty well. How about yourself? I'm good, yeah. And it was exciting to read this uh, wonderful book, Goddess on the Frontier. Um, I'm excited to, to uh, talk to you about it. I think you you do a lot of stuff that doesn't always happen uh, in the study of Chinese religions where you bring in the kind of contemporary, you bring the historical, um, and you put all that detail in really great uh, conversation. So uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful book. Congrats. Oh, thank you so much. It's uh, an honor to be here, and I look forward to the conversation. So um, before we get into the, the book, uh, we always start with a little bit about uh, our authors. So could you tell us a little bit about uh, what got you interested in the study of Buddhism and the study of religion, um, perhaps uh, moments in your in your life or your career that were kind of influential in shaping the the types of things you're interested or the ways you approach them? Um, sure, yes. Um, so I grew up in Eugene, Oregon, uh, which some people may know uh, is a place where there are a lot of folks interested in Buddhism and Asian religions in general. So I think my initial interest in Buddhism was part of that larger context. Um, I was interested in Buddhism as someone who had not been raised in any religion uh, because it seemed different from a lot of other religions in the way that I initially encountered it, which was very much a kind of Buddhist modernist, you know, four noble truths sort of approach. Um, And so when I started at the University of Oregon, I decided I would major in religious studies and focus primarily on Buddhism. I also started studying Chinese there because uh, the university had a pretty good you know, East Asian languages and literatures department, and there seemed to be a lot I could do with the intersections of Chinese and Buddhism. Um, and it was during my undergraduate career that one of my main interests in Buddhism developed, namely in Buddhism and gender. A lot of people think that Buddhism is particularly enlightened, pun intended, in matters related to gender, uh, you know, that it would be very egalitarian. And certainly there are discourses within Buddhism that reinforce that 
But there's also a lot of other stuff. And it was the less egalitarian approaches to gender in Buddhism that really attracted my attention as an undergraduate. So I ended up uh, under the uh, excellent advising of my undergraduate mentor, Kyoko Tokuno, uh, writing an honors thesis on the blood pond hell in Chinese Buddhism, which is uh, a hell really just for women. Um, So women end up in this hell because of the blood of menstruation and childbirth. And so I I wrote this thesis trying to really kind of make sense of what this hell was doing in Chinese Buddhism. Uh, In that case, it was... um, you know, mainly focused on the modern period. So um, after I graduated undergrad, I wanted to continue pursuing these interests. Um, and so I uh, lived in Taiwan for a couple years to improve my Chinese and then applied for graduate programs. I ended up getting into Stanford's uh, Buddhist Studies program. Um, so I went there um, to work with primarily Bernard Four, who had just published Two books on Buddhism and gender. Um, so at Stanford, uh, you know, I was obviously taking a lot of classes uh, on Buddhism in East Asia, um, and I found myself getting interested in another gendered Buddhist figure. In this case, the goddess Hariti, um, who is known in Chinese as Guizimu or Mother of Demons. Um, she's a goddess who initially uh, was a child eater. Uh, but then got converted to Buddhism and became a child giver. So I was really interested in how she, as a goddess, as a gendered figure, was understood in Chinese Buddhism. But in trying to figure out a dissertation topic, I couldn't quite find a real focal point for talking about the goddess Hariti in Chinese Buddhism. Uh, And then one day I was doing a search for Chinese language journal articles uh, on Hariti, and I found all of these articles about the Dali region of what is now Southwest China's Yunnan province. Um, And I learned that there were all of these references to Hariti in the Dali region. Um, And in Dali, Hariti was often associated with another goddess known as Baijie. And so I ended up writing my dissertation about this goddess Baijie, which then became the basis for my book, Goddess on the Frontier. I love hearing all these kind of, uh, the, the way these things weave back and forth. And uh, it's it's great to hear kind of that background, that longer history that you have with this uh, project. Um, maybe before we get into the details, um, you could just uh, kind of introduce us briefly to and I, I'm really interested uh, now hearing more about your interest in, in gender as a kind of theoretical way of understanding Buddhism specifically. What is it uh, about her that allows you to kind of think about these gendered local identities? And w- why do you think this particular deity is a, is a good way to think about this kind of intersection of religion and gender in China? So um, to start off, I want to sort of reassure everyone that it's normal that they haven't heard of this goddess Baijia before. <laughs> um, she is not a, a very well-known figure, um, and it is precisely her local identity that I find so interesting uh, in looking at her as a lens for understanding religion in Dali. So Baijia has a lot of different identities throughout her history. She first emerges in the Dali Kingdom, which was an independent regime 
located in what is now Yunnan province in China. The Dali Kingdom lasted from 937 to 1253. And it's from this period that we start seeing images and texts related to this goddess Baijie. She probably develops as a kind of local transformation of the Hindu slash Buddhist goddess Sri Lakshmi. Um, and she is paired uh, as a consort of a Buddhist god known as Mahakala. But later, my argument is that people sort of forget who she originally was as this Buddhist figure because her identity wasn't very stable uh, in textual and other kinds of sources. And so people come up with different explanations for this name Baijie. So um, in the Ming Dynasty, which in, uh, is roughly uh, 1368 to 1644, we start seeing legends that identify Baijie as the mother of the founder of the Dali Kingdom. And in these stories, Baijie becomes pregnant through this kind of miraculous encounter with a dragon. Um, this is, I should note, fairly common in Chinese religion. Um, so in this case, there's a stick that floats into her while she was bathing. Surprise, it was a dragon in disguise. And so she becomes pregnant with Duan Siping, who is the eventual founder of the Dali Kingdom. And she herself also has a divine origin story that she is said to have been born from this giant plum that grew in the yard of an elderly couple who lacked any heirs. So uh, she also has a kind of divine birth story herself. And so this figure, the mother of the Dali Kingdom founder, also becomes enshrined in temples in the Dali region and worshipped as a goddess. And then you get even later in the Qing dynasty from 1644 to 1911, another identity of Baijie. And this is the one that most people know today. She is uh, understood as a widow martyr, that is, a woman who chose to die rather than marry the man who killed her husband. Um, so in this context, she really embodies a kind of Confucian notion of female chastity. So these three main identities, all tied to the name Baijie, each have a different kind of gendered significance. And so this is one of the reasons that I thought Baijie would be a really fascinating case study for looking at how a gendered figure, uh, in this case a goddess, changes over time in ways that kind of relate to the larger transformations of her locality. So I look at Baijie as a gendered figure. But as the title, uh, I guess the subtitle of the book, uh, which is Religion, Ethnicity, and Gender in Southwest China, also suggests I'm interested in how she intersects um, with ethnicity as well. Uh, and this is one of the, the things that I'm trying to do with this book is get away from a kind of, I guess, sole focus on gender in the study of goddesses. Uh, I think gender is a really important part of who Baijie is in these different kind of incarnations. But I think uh, it's equally important to think about gender in connection to other facets of identity. And that becomes ethnicity later in the history of Dali. In the earlier periods, I argue that it's hard to talk about ethnicity. So I can look at her in connection with a particular form of politico-religious self-representation. Um, but I think that 
uh, it's increasingly important not to isolate gender from these other categories of difference, um, but to see how they overlap and, and intersect. Yeah, and I think the book uh, does that really well. Um, there's a lot to unpack with uh, kind of that intro there. Um, for a lot of people, they might not be familiar with uh, Southwest China, uh, this region that you're talking about. So um, maybe could you uh, tell us a little bit about the peoples, the geographies of uh, the Dali region? Um, and then uh, also, it's probably important to think about how these local identities uh, relate to the various Chinese states uh, from the, the the early history that you begin the book with up until the present. Can you talk about the relationship between the two? Yeah, so um, Dali is um, a kind of sub-region within what is now Yunnan province in southwest China. Um, one of the reasons that I found it such an interesting place to focus on um, is that especially during the times when it was home to these two uh, really a series of independent regimes from the 7th or 8th century with the Nanjiao Kingdom through the end of the Dali Kingdom in 1253, it was bordered by a real variety of different kinds of, you know, languages and cultures. So the Dali region to the north and northeast was bordered by Chinese states. Um, so the Tang through the Song for the Nanjiao and Dali kingdoms. But to the northwest, it bordered Tibetan regions. To the west, it bordered um, you know, what is now Myanmar or Burma. And then slightly farther west uh, is India. Uh, and then to the south and southeast are various you know, Southeast Asian cultures, including um, you know, the, the Vietnamese regimes, the you know, Li and Dai Viet, um, as well as you know, slightly farther uh, Champa, um, Bagan, you know, th those kinds of uh, areas. So one of the things that I find continuously, you know, interesting about the Dali region is how the people there sort of crafted their own distinctive local traditions out of this, you know, wide array of possibilities. Um, it's also meant that it's easy for scholars to project whatever they want onto Dali, um, if you you know people want it to be Tibetan, they can make it Tibetan. If they want it to be Thai, they can make it Thai. Chinese, it's Chinese. Um, and so I'm trying to go back and really look carefully at the historical materials um, to not assume that Dali was necessarily any one thing, um, but to see how the people there you know use their own agency in developing their own tradition. So that's what Dali is really up until the Mongol conquest of 1253. So in 1253, uh, the Mongol army coming from the West um, deals with the Dali kingdom pretty easily. Um, it's a fairly quick defeat. Um, and then the Mongols go on to um, eventually defeat the Southern Song dynasty and establish the Mongol Yuan dynasty, uh, which lasts from about um, 1279 uh, to 1368. Um, so with that, Dali is incorporated into a larger empire after having been an independent center for several centuries. Um, 
And it's sort of interesting to see what happens in the Yuan dynasty. Um, there's a really interesting dissertation by Jacqueline Armijo Hussein about uh, a Muslim from Central Asia whom the Mongols basically hire to impose Confucian education in Yunnan. Um, so there's a real kind of mix of cultural flows happening at this time. Um, in the Ming Dynasty, is, uh, which is founded in, in 1368, we really see the Dali region um, increasingly incorporated into a Chinese empire centered in the East. And it's in the Ming Dynasty when there's an influx of migrants from Central and Eastern China that starts settling in the Dali region and in Yunnan in general. Um, and this trend continues into the Qing Dynasty, which is founded in 1644, uh, when more and more um, people from the um, sort of Chinese interior start moving into Yunnan um, mainly for employment. Um, mining was extremely prevalent in Yunnan. Um, and, and so this takes us into the modern period. Um, so Yunnan, um, you know, becomes a province in the modern, you know, states of the Republic of China and then the People's Republic of China, uh, where Yunnan is really, I think, the most diverse province. Um, it has, I believe, 26 of the officially recognized uh Minority nationalities um, are based in Yunnan, um, so it's demographically diverse. It's also geographically diverse. Uh, you have the, you know, foothills of the Himalaya Mountains uh, in the northwest, but then when you get to the far south, it's very, you know, similar to Southeast Asia. You know, very hot kind of jungle uh, territory, and then you have everything in between. Um, so it's it's a very, you know, geographically and demographically diverse area. Really, I think from the early periods I look at up through the present. Now, uh, knowing this background, it makes sense that um, kind of the the history of Buddhism uh, and its transmission into the region would be different uh from kind of what we think of as china proper um but could you could you tell us a little bit about this history um you you do this in the in the first chapter um what what do we need to know about the development of buddhism in the region and how did the uh, the the local expression of the tradition relate to um both chinese and and indian formulations yeah so um Based on the sources that we have, which I should note are fairly limited, it appears that the main routes of transmission uh, for Buddhism to enter the Dali region came from the Tang dynasty, Tang territory. Um, and the Tang dynasty lasted from uh, 618 to 907. So during that time, uh, there was a lot of contact between the polity that ruled the Dali region, which was called Nanjiao, uh, and the Tang forces. Um, and the Tang were really interested in the Dali area at this time because Tibet was growing as a threat to Tang dynasty power, uh, and the Tang court wanted an ally near Tibet to keep Tibet in check. So we have a lot of um, data on those interactions between Nanjiao and the Tang dynasty. Uh, so it's likely that those interactions um, were the source really for Buddhism entering the Nanjiao 
polity. Um, and by this, I mainly, I, I think, mean Buddhist texts, uh, because the elites, at least in the Dali region, starting with the Nanjiao kingdom, they read Sinitic script as opposed to primarily reading Sanskrit or Tibetan or any other language. Um, so they're getting their textual material from the Tang. Um, I increasingly think that there were other routes for the transmission of Buddhist images and material culture. So I think that there were some images that were actually entering the area from Southeast Asia and probably from India as well. Um, but I still think that in terms of artistic styles and forms, as well as textual materials, the main source was probably uh, the Sichuan region, which is directly to the north of Yunnan. And in fact, there are records of the Nanjiao court educating their sons in Sichuan, as well as occasionally raiding um, the main city of Chengdu and kidnapping artisans and other people to come back to Nanjiao um, and work there. Um, we also know that the Nanjiao forces kidnapped some Tang officials um, and brought them back to serve as imperial tutors uh, for Nanjiao. So we think that um, a lot of Nanjiao Buddhism um, and what became Dali Kingdom Buddhism probably entered from Tang territory. However, the way that Nanjiao rulers or the Nanjiao court in general represented that Buddhist transmission emphasizes the Indian route much more strongly. So there's one source um, from the late Nanjiao period from 899, uh, Nanjiao Falls in 903, um, called the Nanjiao Tu Zhuan, which means illustrated history of Nanjiao. Um, it's a great source. Um, it recounts first in images and then in text how Buddhism was at least theoretically introduced to the region. And it claims that a particular bodhisattva, uh, the bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara or Guanyin, um, introduced Buddhism to the region in the guise of an Indian monk. Um, so it really is making the claim that even though there might have been other Buddhist transmissions entering the Dali region from Tibet, from Chinese territory, from Central Asia, the main transmission was from India. Um, and the visual representation of this particular form of the Bodhisattva Guanyin, which is Atsuye Guanyin or Invincible Guanyin, um, that, that actual image is probably based on a statue that entered the region from Southeast Asia, uh, probably from Champa in what's now sort of Southern Vietnam. So um, th there's a real disjuncture between what the historical record suggests to us about how Buddhism entered the Dali region and how people in Dali, um, specifically the Nanjiao and then the Dali courts, represented their Buddhist transmission. Um, and I argue that the reason for this is that um, Nanjiao and Dali's proximity to India gave them an advantage in claiming a direct Indian transmission for their Buddhist tradition. Um, that in the eyes of, say, the Tang or Song dynasties, Dali's proximity to India gave them a, a kind of superior status in the realm of 
Buddhist discourse. Um, by contrast, the people in Dali could never claim superiority in the realm of, say, Confucian discourse, which they also were very familiar with and also used in some of their other writings. Now, you, you've introduced us uh, a little bit to um, kind of the, the discourse uh, around uh, Baijie during this, this early period of the, the Dali Kingdom. Um, but um, can you tell us uh, a little bit more about um, how her identity was constructed during this period and why, why were Dali rulers kind of uh, employing it? Um, and then also you, you, you go into a little bit more detail in the chapter about how ideas about gender during this period are, are shaping the construction of Baijie in particular ways. So can you walk us through a little bit more of this uh, history? Yeah, so um, Baijie shows up in several sources from the Dali Kingdom. One of these is this magnum opus of Dali Kingdom Buddhist art from the 1170s uh, called the Fanxiang Zhen, uh, or Roll of Buddhist Images. Um, it's a really amazing work of art. Um, it consists of paintings of a wide variety of Buddhist figures, bodhisattvas, Chan patriarchs, wrathful Dharma guardians, as well as Nanjiao and Dali rulers. And Baijie shows up toward the end of the painting in the section of Dharma guardians, that is, you know, God's in Buddhism that aren't necessarily understood as awakened beings, but who are powerful beings capable of protecting Buddhism and Buddhists from potential threats. So she shows up toward the end um, and her image is really striking. Um, She's a feminine figure wearing a long sort of full coverage robe. uh, And she looks in general like an elegant, you know, Chinese lady, except for the fact that there are three snake heads framing her face. So there's one snake directly above her head and then one on each side of her head. She's also standing on serpent coils. So this signifies her identity as a serpent goddess. Um, Her skin is also a bit darker than the skin of other figures in the scroll. Um, And in this scroll, she is standing next to the Buddhist god with whom she's paired, the god Mahakala, uh, whose name means great black god in Chinese. It's Dahe Tianshen. So Mahakala is a trans-regional Buddhist figure um, who is known for protecting the the Buddhist teachings. Um, He's often depicted as a wrathful figure with serpents uh, and skulls adorning him. Um, And he's depicted, uh, you know, with fangs, with, you know, extra eyes and limbs, um, and is dressed, you know, with much less coverage. He generally only wears a tiger skin skirt um, and, and, you know, the top half of his body is, is bare. So, so they form a kind of pair in this painting that I argue uh, really reflects how Dali court Buddhists uh, were engaging with gendered religious imagery. Um, for Mahakala, the god, um, I argue that he embodies a kind of wrathful masculinity um, that for the rulers of Dali signifies a kind of non-Chineseness. And that 
the Dali rulers were trying to tap into this image of, you know, so-called barbarian or barbaric masculinity uh, to augment their perceived uh, power in relation to the Song dynasty. Um, in contrast with Baijie, her image does evoke certain kinds of Indianness or non-Chinese aspects of identity, but the Dali court does not depict her um, in the same way that Indian dragons or snake uh, goddesses are depicted, which is to say, you know, wearing very little clothing, you know, often with very exaggerated hourglass figures, or in a kind of obvious sexual union with a male counterpart. So um, with Baijie, the Dali court artists are... Um, really restraining themselves and making sure that she still conforms to so at least quasi-Chinese notions of acceptable femininity. Um, so whereas a kind of gender difference in connection to ethnicity is really emphasized with Mahakala and masculinity, um, it is definitely not emphasized with Baijie and femininity, um, that for a lot of these rulers, um, you know, female deities are not the place to emphasize, uh, you know, gendered um, ethnic differences. So that's, um, I think, an important aspect of understanding Baijie's image in the Dali kingdom. Um, and this, I think, is an aspect of her identity that continues into later periods as well. Yeah, and um, so in the, the next chapter, you uh, move into the Ming period during the 15th century, um, and you, you began to tell us this this very interesting narrative uh, in terms of how Baijia is uh, narrativized during this period. Um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, why um, she's constructed in this particular way? Why is this narrative becoming important during this period? Um what, what kind of themes uh, are emerging from this story? Um, and then it also you kind of explain it in relation to the, the Dali elites, which are, um, in terms of a social context, uh, have a very different position than they did uh, during the Dali kingdom. So um, what, what is going on in this period? Why are we seeing this change? So the, the Ming conquest really ushers in a sea change in the Dali region, um, because even after the Mongol conquest, uh, the authorities in Dali still retained uh, some of their existing power. Um, but with the Ming conquest, uh, the you know influx of Chinese migrants really changed the landscape in Dali. And especially Dali elites and the educated elite were really forced to confront the stereotype uh, of themselves as, you know, so-called barbarians. Um, and I think that a lot of the legends that develop at this time, including the legend surrounding Baijie's second identity, that of Baijie Amei, the mother of Duan Siping, the founder of the Dali Kingdom, are responses to the Ming conquest and an attempt to assert the uh, legitimacy and uh, importance of existing lineages in the Dali area. So the narrative that emerges is the one, as, as you said, that I sort of summarized earlier, uh, which says that uh, there was an older couple 
in the area of the Dali Plain um, who lacked any heirs. And so they, you know, performed rituals, made sacrifices. And then one day when they were outside, they saw this giant plum had grown uh, in their backyard. Um, when the plum split open, this, you know, lovely girl emerged. And um, so they, they raised this, this girl. Um, she one day is bathing in the river and a piece of wood floats into her foot, uh, whereupon um, she becomes pregnant. And then we learn that the piece of wood was actually a dragon in disguise. She gives birth to twin sons, uh, one of whom goes on to found the Dali kingdom. Um, so the way I understand this legend is that the, the sources that recount the legend come from um, a couple of families in the Dali Plain area, especially the Yang family. And I think that the Yang family really was claiming this woman, this Baijie, as one of their own ancestors, and they're trying to insert themselves into uh, the kind of uh, exalted history of the Dali region. Um, they're also tapping into narrative tropes that come up in classical Chinese antiquity as well. Uh, there are a lot of stories in classical Chinese antiquity of rulers being born from dragons, um, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, the founder of the Han Dynasty, whose mother is said to have conceived him when she had a dream um, about uh, a dragon coming to her while on the banks of uh, a river, um, you know, or just the idea of the dragon as a symbol of imperial status. Um, so I think that, you know, this narrative is taking these, um, you know, transregional narrative tropes um, and transplanting them to the Dali area, giving the rulers of the Dali kingdom retroactively a kind of divine origin that then their later descendants in the Dali plain can claim as well as a way of augmenting their status um, with relation to these newly arrived, you know, Ming officials, as well as Chinese migrants from the interior. So I, I read it as a way of pushing back against this perception of Dali as a kind of peripheral backwater and its people as, you know, so-called barbarians. Now, um, th this narrative of Baijie as a widow martyr um, is also kind of emerging at a time when uh, the social factors uh, are are shifting. Um, so how how was this story being retold during this period? Um, and how, how was her identity kind of uh, interpreted uh, by both the, the by community, uh, the local community, um, but then also from uh, Han Chinese who were um, becoming more present uh, during this period. Yeah, so the, the widow martyr narrative, the, the story itself starts to emerge as early as the Yuan dynasty. Um, and Baijia, the name doesn't get tied to it until the Qing dynasty um, of you know, 1644 to 1911. So um, to, to recount this story um, in a little bit more detail, um, the account goes that when the um, one of the Nanjiao rulers was trying to 
conquer his five regional rivals, he invited them all to worship their shared ancestors at his capital with the plan that once he got them upstairs in the tower and got them drunk, he could sneak back down, set the structure on fire and kill them all, thereby you know, being able to much more easily take over their respective kingdoms. So the story goes that um, the ruler of one of these other regimes uh, called the Dungan regime, he was married to Baijie. And Baijie warns him, you know, don't go, it's a trap. He's going to, you know, do something shady. But her husband says, I really have no choice. I have to go. So Baijie affixes an iron bracelet to his arm and sends him on his way. Sure enough, the Nanjiao ruler ends up, you know, setting this tower on fire, killing his five rivals, one of whom was Baijie's husband. Um, all of the loved ones of these you know, murdered rulers come to the Nanjiao capital to retrieve the bodies, but Baijie is the only one who can identify her husband's body because she had the foresight of giving him the iron bracelet. Um, the Nanjiao ruler is then entranced by Baijie's beauty and her intelligence and asks her to marry him. And she, you know, basically says, you know, sure, okay, I'll marry you. Just let me go back to my capital and get ready first. Um, and so he agrees. She goes back to her capital and shuts her, herself in inside. Uh, and then there are varying explanations for how she ends up dying. Um, but the sort of short version is that she decides to die rather than marry the man who killed her husband. Um, and so this story coincides um, you know, both with the increasing encroachment of the Chinese state in Dali, but also with uh, the rise of the so-called chastity cult in late imperial China. Um, so this is the idea that chastity was becoming the preeminent virtue for women. Um, and in some cases, the Ming and Qing states would uh, award women who remained chaste after their husband's death, um, or, you know, in some cases, uh, even who committed suicide rather than, um, you know, be raped or sexually harassed. Um, so it has, to, I think the, the rise of this form of Baijia has to be understood within this context. So in the context of late imperial Dali, I think this story and Baijia's role within it does different things for the locals in Dali, the kind of uh, native Dali elites, as well as for um, you know officials of the Ming and Qing dynasties. I think for the local Dali elites, because feminine virtue tends to be held up as a marker of civilization versus barbarism, um, Dali elites could use this story as evidence that their ancestors, that the people of Dali had long known Confucian feminine virtue, that their women in particular were chaste and virtuous, um, such that you know, they could hopefully counteract Han or Chinese stereotypes about you know, minority women or so-called barbarian women as sexually promiscuous. Um, at the same time, for the officials of the Ming and Qing dynasties, um, this 
story about Baijia as a widow martyr uh, served as a kind of proof that their civilizing projects in the Southwest or in other newly conquered territories uh, could be successful. Um, there are also some, especially gazetteers from this period, that remark on you know how exceptional Baijia is because they, they thought it was so unusual that a so-called barbarian woman could embody this kind of virtue without the benefit of you know more extensive Confucian influence. So I think that this this narrative about Baijia, the widow martyr, um, one of the reasons it was so successful in this period is that it had something to offer both um, outsiders as well as Dali locals. Um, in terms of regular people, it's much harder to know from the historical record what this narrative meant for them. Um, what I, what really comes out of the, especially gazetteers, was that even as the local and outside elites were really trying to present this form of Baijia as an exemplar, you know, as a figure to be emulated rather than as an efficacious goddess, Probably most people were engaging with Baijia, even in her widow martyr form, as an efficacious goddess. That is, praying for good fortune, um, you know, praying for rain, um, for you know, sons, th- things of that nature. So I think that there's also uh, some hints of a gap between this official version of Baijia and the more popular understanding of Baijia. And uh, th- this kind of understanding by uh, regular people, as you put it, uh, you you kind of tackle that in the in the last chapter, which uh, looks at Baijia in the modern period. Um, and this this I feel like you could have written a whole book on on just this chapter because it really does a lot of uh, work. Um, so I, I'm interested because, uh, especially given the subtitle of the book, uh, this is really where you tackle. Uh, state notions of the category of religion, of ideas about ethnicity, um, and you you take us through how those uh, shape interpretations, recent interpretations of Baijia. Um, so, uh, what what does she come to mean in the the modern period? How does this kind of new uh, kind of discursive and 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 social context uh, change how people understand her? Yeah. So. Um... You're absolutely right that this chapter could have been a book unto itself. Um, And I think it's only my, um, I guess, feeling humbled in doing the kind of ethnographic work that underpins this chapter um, that has, I guess, made me realize how very difficult it would be to do a book length project just on the kind of modern and contemporary period. Um, you know, engaging with lived religion in the way that I did for the last chapter was extremely valuable, especially for, I think, the light it shed on earlier historical periods and kind of cluing me into all of the things that I simply don't have access to in, in looking to the past. Because I entered my encounters with, you know, people during various forms of fieldwork with a lot of assumptions that they pretty handily 
dismantled. Um, and one of the, the main assumptions was that I think I address in that chapter is, is the expectation that people today would think about Baijie as an ethnic goddess. Uh, because um, one of the main ways of writing her name could be understood as Bai sister, and the Bai people or the Bai Minzu um, are really centered in the Dali area of Yunnan province. Uh, in fact, Dali is known as Dali Bai Autonomous Prefecture. So I went in initially with this expectation that Baijie would be this great ethnic goddess. When I talked to you know, a lot of the local scholars or tourism officials, they reinforced that assumption. But when I went to a lot of Baijia temples and talked to the, the people there, many of whom are middle-aged and older women, who are the people generally in charge of village religion in this part of China and elsewhere, um, ethnicity didn't really come up. Um, I mean, or if it came up, it was because I introduced the category of ethnicity or Minzu in asking, you know, who worships Baijia, you know, which, which Minzu. Um, and sometimes people would say, oh, the Bai Minzu, or in some cases, you know, the Han, the Bai. Uh, but in a lot of cases, you know, people really didn't seem sure, um, mainly because that wasn't the way that they generally thought about Baijia. Um, and what I learned, especially in talking to the, the women who are in charge of a lot of the Baijia temples in village religion, um, was that they tended to volunteer more gendered categories in talking about Baijia. Um, and these tended to be related to her, you know, chastity, um, to her beauty, um, you know, she's often described as kind of a mother to the people who live in a particular village. Uh, and I should clarify that uh, in Dali now, a lot of villages have their own kind of tutelary, uh, you know, protector deities known as banju. Um, and so Baijia is one of these village deities. Um, so certain villages will have her as their main guardian. Um so the, the fact that a lot of uh, villagers, a lot of the women in particular, talked about Baijia in gendered rather than ethnic terms, I still think relates to the ways in which gender and ethnicity intersect in contemporary China, um, which is to say that these perceptions of minority women as promiscuous um, or sexually uninhibited still persist, especially in the Southwest. Um, there are a lot of, you know, kind of salacious um, write-ups about, uh, you know, certain minority nationalities or, or ethnic groups in, in Yunnan province uh, that really present them as, as being unrestrained in contrast to the buttoned-up, you know, Confucian Han. Um, and so I think for a lot of Women um, who are of minority nationalities in Yunnan, including the Bai women uh, and sometimes Han women I talk to, um, there's not much to gain from emphasizing gendered ethnic difference. Um, and in that way, I think that there are continuities um, that continue from the Dali kingdom. Um, so I think in some ways, the emphasis on Baijie's gendered characteristics and the continued emphasis on her chastity um, and elighting ethnicity is a way of, you know, arguing for possessing the same kind of, you know, Confucian virtue as 
upon women. I think another aspect of this is that, you know, village religion in Dali did not kind of develop within the constraints of ethnicity. Um, And so there are plenty of mixed villages where some people might, you know, have ID cards labeling them by others might have ID cards labeling them as Han, but they still might participate in the same kinds of religious practices. The ethnicization of Dali religion um, is really a product of uh, the attempt, I think, to um, reify certain forms of ethnic culture. Um, And for some scholars and tourism officials of the bi-ethnicity, one of the things they confront is a perception of the bi as being too sinicized, that is, as being too Chinese. And so there's a pressure to identify that which distinguishes bi culture, including bi religion, from Han religion. And the worship of these local deities known as Banju has been one of the things that has been um, sort of defined increasingly in these by ethnic terms. Um, and I, I open the book with uh, an account of this grand reopening of a Baijia temple uh, in the Dali region that I think is being um, really incorporated into a kind of ethno-tourism that is turning you know, Dali's local religion into a, a really kind of distinctively by religious practice in ways that um, you don't find uh, historically. So, so I think these are, are some of the things that are coming up. In terms of, of religious discourse, um, this is also, of course, a, a tricky thing to navigate, um, in part because a lot of local religion, if it's not clearly Buddhist or Taoist uh, or, you know, uh, Islamic or Christian doesn't get the official religion category, that category of zongjiao. So um, it occupies a kind of gray area um, that you know can be sort of dealt with by calling it um, traditional culture or, in this case, ethnic culture. Um, so I think the the worship of Baijia, um, you know, d- does change as people are engaging with these you know, categories of modernity, including religion, ethnicity, and, and to some extent, gender. I'm, I'm wondering also, I, it's, it's a wonderful book, Megan. Uh, congrats again. Um, and I think you really um, do a great job of kind of bringing in this historical detail, uh, attention to textual resources, um, but then also bringing in this contemporary part, which I don't think happens a lot. Um in the study of Chinese religions, I wonder if you just have any reflections on on studying religion in China uh, and kind of giving us this this broad sweep of both the historical and the contemporary. Well, thank you. I, I really appreciate the the kind words, and um, of course, I would have liked a little more room to explore some of the periods that I deal with um, because it ends up being a bit of a whirlwind um, through this thousand year long history. Um, Sure. To, to me, um, you know, one of my inspirations um, in thinking about this project was um, uh, Brigitte Baptandier's study of a goddess called Lin Shui Furen, or Lady Close to the Water, um, who is a, a deity mainly in southeast China um, and Taiwan. Um, and uh, Baptandier also does this kind of longitudinal study where she uh, looks at Lin Shui Furen in 
um, you know, roughly starting around the Song Dynasty, but then uh, also does some ethnographic work um, focused on this deity's spirit mediums in um, modern and contemporary Taiwan in particular. And so that was inspiring to me um, methodologically because I, I do think there's something that um, you you can only get at by engaging with living people. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, for me, I don't think Baijia's story would have been complete without thinking about how her contemporary devotees are engaging with her. Um, as I said, I think it also you know, gave me insights into the earlier materials, especially just including me into how much I don't know um, or, and can't know about how people in you know, the Nanjiao and Dali kingdoms, uh, in the Ming and Qing dynasties, um, actually engaged with and made meaning with the goddess Baijia. Um, you know, I, I think lived religion, um, it's so complex. Um, it's, and it was, it was a truly humbling experience. Uh, you know, I had worked a little bit with some anthropology professors at Stanford, uh, you know, while I was finishing up grad school, but, um, I, you know, I, I really felt that, um, that, that is something that, you know, needs, I think, more attention. Um, and I, I'm I'm in awe of, of the many anthropologists who do this work, uh, you know, more regularly. Um, so I think I think it was really um, a, a necessary part of this puzzle for what I was trying to do with Baijia. And I'm really grateful to the people of, of the Dali region who indulged my many questions, um, especially you know the ones that probably to them came out of left field. um so uh, people i'm sure are interested to hear what you're up to now um could you tell us a little bit about some of the things you're working on and uh things we might hope for in the future yeah so um i have a couple of things uh right now i'm uh, sticking in dolly for my second book project or second monograph, um, which is going to be on esoteric Buddhist networks around the Dali kingdom. So uh, even though I'm sticking in Dali geographically, I'm going back to a a much narrower historical period, but trying to, uh, I guess, trace the connections between the Dali area and surrounding regions. Um, And what I'm really hoping to do with this is trace out these uh, textual, visual, and material networks, uh, because I increasingly think that even though the textual networks mainly tied the Dali area to you know, Tang and Song territory, I think the visual and material networks um, sort of show stronger connections to some other neighboring regions. Um, so I'm, I'm looking at how Dali Buddhists were participating in these kind of broader, uh, you know, trans-regional networks. So that's one project. Another project is an edited volume uh, on Buddhist masculinities um, that I'm working on uh, with a colleague at Northwestern, Kevin Buckaloo. Uh, so we're, we've been soliciting, you know, contributions from scholars working on Buddhism across a wide variety of regions and time periods. Um, and we really hope to, uh, you know, fully expand the study of gender in Buddhism. Um, You know, I think most people now kind of realize that gender is not just women and not just, you know, 
the feminine, however that is defined, uh, but also includes, you know, men and masculinity. And so we're really trying to, um, you know, extend the, the study of gender and Buddhism um, and, and also make something that, you know, hopefully people who are teaching classes on Buddhism and gender, Buddhism and, and sexuality can can use. Um, so, so that's what I've, I've got going on right now. So I think taking some of the themes of, of this book um, and, and running with them in, in slightly different directions. Well, good luck, Megan, and thanks for uh, making the time to talk about this wonderful book. Well, thanks so much for having me, and, and thank you again for um, letting me uh, talk about Goddess on the Frontier. That was my conversation with Megan Bryson about Goddess on the Frontier, Religion, Ethnicity, and Gender in Southwest China, published with Stanford University Press in 2016. Thanks again for supporting New Books in Religion. I hope you'll check out another episode soon. <laughs>